I hope you have your Bible handy, and if you do, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 28. That's our passage today, Matthew chapter 28. And here's the key concept for this morning, this Resurrection Sunday. You can doubt your doubts. Death is defeated. Go ahead and doubt your doubts. Death is defeated. Resurrection Sunday. This is the day that we reflect on the defeat of death. Jesus comes back from the grave. But before we get to that moment in the life of Christ, I want to take you back earlier to a scene that shows up in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, we meet a desperate man. In fact, he's a desperate father. His son is demon-possessed. And the demon evidently loves to torture and torment this young man. The boy can't speak. He, he suffers from spasms. Oftentimes he's thrown to the ground and foam comes out of his mouth. He suffers fits when he's thrown into fire and water. And at this point, the father is desperate for Jesus to do something for his son. And he comes to Jesus, and this is what the father says in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 22. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Now Jesus in that story goes on to cure that young boy. But I want you to focus with me on the raw honesty of that father this morning. His words illustrate the dilemma that many of us, many of you, face today. Doubt tugs on our mind and heart, even this resurrection morning. Help my unbelief, he says. The man is admitting, I'm struggling here. I'm just not sure. Help me to have faith. Today we celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But is it true? Is Jesus Lord or is all of this a legend? The resurrection, you see, is the crux of the matter for Christianity. As the Apostle Paul writes, if Christ is not raised, we're still in our sins. If Christ is not raised, our faith is futile. Everything hangs on the resurrection for the Christian. And the reason for that is if Jesus can overcome this which is for us an unstoppable force, death, if He can overcome death, that it proves that he indeed is God, and we can hope in Him for our salvation. But can we believe it? Can you believe it? Or is it all some sort of hoax based on a conspiracy developed by Jesus' earliest followers? People do believe hoaxes, you know. Conspiracy theories are still around. One theory says that the 1969 Apollo moon landing was faked. It was not real. It was all filmed on a soundstage in Los Angeles. The idea that a UFO crashed and the remains of that vessel are housed in Roswell, New Mexico, got new traction just last year, 2019, as many people were ready to storm Area 51 and find out for themselves. And every once in a while, a story pops up that tells us that Elvis is alive and eating in a roadside diner someplace. Is the resurrection on par with these kinds of hoaxes? Recently, I read a book called Cold Case Christianity. 
It's written by a former detective named J. Warner Wallace. He investigates claims of the gospel using the techniques that he applied as a cold case investigator. He investigated old murder cases. And usually by the time that he got the cases, the witnesses were dead, the documents were old, he often had to sort through fact and fiction, various versions of the story that were reported over the years, and people often tried to hide the truth or to make up a story. And so over time, he began to observe what he calls the basic rules that enable a strong conspiracy or a believable hoax to exist. He developed five of those rules. A small number of conspirators. Number two, the conspirators had to keep in touch. Number three, a short time span for the conspiracy to be active. Number four, significant relationships between the conspirators. And number five, little or no pressure on the conspirators themselves. If those five things were in place, he said, oftentimes you had a believable hoax that transpired. Now, for those who might claim that the followers of Jesus conspired to make a hoax called the resurrection, we need to ask the question, how does the history of the movement of the Christ followers line up with the qualities that make up a successful conspiracy? So let's consider that this morning. The resurrection really boils down to three questions. Number one, was Jesus really dead? Number two, was the tomb really empty? And number three, was he really seen alive by credible people after his death? If you can answer yes for those three questions, we have a solid basis for accepting the truth of the resurrection. And once you accept the truth of the resurrection, it puts everything into focus regarding Jesus. So, was Jesus really dead? Is it possible to imagine that the Romans were fooled into thinking that Jesus was dead when, in fact, he was alive? Medical experts, consider, considering only the medicine of the details, find that hard to believe. In John 19, verse 1, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. We know about Roman flogging. We know that the Roman flogging often in itself killed the prisoner. The soldiers used a whip, braided leather. Inside that braided leather was, was, uh, were, were placed metal balls and shards of bone. The metal ball would inflict deep bruises on the prisoner while the bone tore the flesh away. It was common for the victim of a Roman flogging to go into shock from the trauma. And many medical experts think that's exactly what Jesus was experiencing when he was unable to carry the cross beam of the cross on the Via Dolorosa. But of course, the flogging was just the prelude. Crucifixion was designed for a slow death with maximum pain and maximum shame. Crucifixion, you see, is not just about killing someone. It's about terrifying a people. So it was a drawn-out process where spikes five to seven inches long were driven through the feet and through the wrists, causing unbearable pain as they pierced the nerves. You can imagine people dying simply from the pain of that kind of shock. But what really killed people in crucifixion was the inability to breathe. 
the, the person hanging on the cross would not be able to take a breath in that position without pushing up on his nail-pierced feet. And eventually he would be unable to do that over time, and so he would slowly die. You know, if the Romans wanted to speed up the process, what they would do is go along and break the legs of those who were hanging on the cross. So they could not lift themselves up and so would die. In Jesus' case, we're told that the chief priests wanted the bodies of the victims off the crosses before the sundown and the Sabbath came. So they had the legs broken. But when they got to Jesus, it says they found that he was already dead. You cannot fake the inability to breathe. If there was one thing that Roman soldiers did well, it was kill people. It does not square with the facts to imagine that Jesus was anything other than dead. That brings us to the second question. Was the body really missing from the tomb? It's one thing to say that he died, but it's another thing to say that he left that tomb afterward. But if he was not missing from that tomb, if the tomb isn't empty, there's no sense worshiping him. There's no sense following him. So the tomb, it would have been secured by a large round stone rolled in a groove or a gutter to cover the door. That gutter would have been on a slight incline so that as you rolled the the stone downhill slightly, you closed the tomb. You had to roll it uphill slightly to open. In other words, it was hard to open these tombs. It would take a few men to roll back that stone once it was put in place. And Matthew tells us that due to the volatility of the crowd, due to the fact that Jesus has predicted, had predicted his resurrection, they had guards placed on that tomb. But when you get to Sunday morning, every one of the Gospels tell us clearly that the tomb was empty. He was risen. Let's look at our passage. Matthew chapter 28. I asked you to find that a few moments ago. Let's go there right now. Matthew 28, starting in verse 5, says this. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. Now, there would be those who say, Well, we can't trust the testimony of these women. They are close to Jesus. They are followers of Jesus. They're they're going to be biased in anything that they have to say. But just the fact that they were women leads to credibility regarding this story. You see, this was a male-dominated society. A woman in this day and age, in this society, was legally not allowed to testify in a court of law. You see, if Christ's followers were conspiring to start a hoax that would be accepted and believed, they certainly would not have women as those who discovered the empty tomb. The tomb was empty. We need to remember that the first century citizens would have known exactly what tomb they were talking about. They would know specifically where to find it. This was the tomb of a prominent citizen, Joseph of Arimathea. If it was not empty, they easily could have gone and retrieved the body and produced the body. But there was no body to produce. It was so obviously empty that We read that the Jewish leaders bribed the guards to say that they had fallen asleep during the night and the disciples had stolen the body. 
Up in verse 12 of Matthew 28, it says this, They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole Him away while we were sleeping. Previous to that, Matthew is specific that Pilate has given orders to the guards saying, make it as secure as you know how. In other words, by any means necessary, protect this too. Does anyone think for a moment that a few sleep-deprived, grief-stricken, fishermen-turned-preachers could overpower those guards? In fact, there's no theory about what happens on Easter morning that is more plausible than the resurrection itself unless before you even look at the, uh, at the evidence, you rule out a God who can work miracles. But if there is a God, this looks like His work. The tomb was empty. So what about the third question? Was Jesus seen alive after the resurrection? Is that credible? The reality is there are many Jesus sightings after the resurrection. The Apostle Paul talks about one of them in 1 Corinthians. He wrote the first letter to the church in Corinth in about A.D. 55. But what's important to note is that when he writes this letter in A.D. 55, he actually recites a creed that is much older and already in use. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting in verse 3, it says this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, Paul continues, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now, what I want you to see is this. Scholars trace the use of that four-line creed, Christ died for our sins, was buried, raised on the third day, and appeared to Peter and the twelve. They trace that use of that creed all the way back to between A.D. 33 and 38. In other words, right after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. It was a statement that was memorable. In Greek, it was four lines, and it starts every line with the word that. And Paul quotes that creed here as he writes to Corinth. The important thing for you to see there is that that creed was being, was being circulated so early that anybody who heard it could have checked it out. They could go to the tomb and see if it's empty. They could talk to the eyewitnesses. It was being circulated in Jerusalem at the very time when the disciples were still there. But not only that, Paul says that there, were, there was a moment when Jesus appeared to 500. Most of those 500 are still alive in the year A.D. 55 when Paul writes the letter. In other words, he's saying, go and ask them. Jesus was seen alive. We have almost immediate first century sources validating that. The Bible gives at least 11 sightings of Jesus after the resurrection. So let's back up a moment. What about those components that make up a good conspiracy? Do we see those components at work in the early followers? Is it possible that these men concocted and executed and maintained the most elaborate and influential conspiracy of all time? What are the components, again, of a good working conspiracy? Number one, 
a small number of people on the inside. Acts 1.15 tells us that just over 40 days after the resurrection, as the followers of Jesus met, there were 120 people in that meeting. Paul here, we saw, refers to 500 who saw Jesus after the resurrection. And when Peter preaches the sermon at Pentecost, 3,000 come to faith in Christ that day. The numbers grew rapidly. Close communication was the second component. Following the persecution that broke out in Jerusalem, the apostles had to scatter throughout the empire. And they had no way to quickly communicate. And all the while that they're separated, they are arrested, they are interrogated, and all but the Apostle John are martyred for the faith. And all through this time, they had no way of knowing what the other people were saying. They could have saved themselves by saying it was a hoax. If this was a conspiracy, it means that the apostles knew that the resurrection was a lie, but every one of them died for that statement and for that truth. They would have known it was false if it, if it had been a lie. And my point is this, people will die for a lie, but people will not die for something they know is a lie. It is true. Number three, strong relational bonds. Some of the original 12, it's true, were related, but many were complete strangers and from different backgrounds. And as the church grew and expanded, people came from all walks of life with no prior connection, all kinds of different languages and ethnicities come to faith in Jesus. But what about the fourth component, lack of pressure? It's exactly the opposite with the resurrection. The apostles and the early Christians were aggressively persecuted, scattered from Italy to India. What about a short duration? The resurrection message of Jesus has lasted more than two millennia, and it has changed the world. Here's what Detective Wallace concludes, concludes about this story. <clears throat> he says, I can't imagine a less favorable set of circumstances for a successful conspiracy. He can't imagine it because it's all true. It actually happened. That is why the preachers in the New Testament talked about the resurrection most often. You look at the very first sermon that was ever preached in the Christian era. Peter at Pentecost, he says in Acts 2 verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of that fact. The defeat of death is verified and in the triumph, Jesus shows his power and his identity. He is who He claimed to be, God the Son, the only way to God the Father, to forgiveness and hope forever. Jesus made this declaration in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way to the Father is the way to forgiveness, to a new life here on earth and a promise of heaven forever. That way is through Jesus. Let's go back to that father who asked Jesus to help him with his unbelief. When he said that, he's saying, Jesus, help me have faith. But he doesn't mean help me have faith in a religious system. He means, Jesus, help me have faith in you. Help me have faith that you are who you say you are and you can do what you say you can do. Help me have faith in you. You see, religion, bottom line, is always the, control, uh, the attempt to control God so that good things, not bad things, happen to me. 
in ancient religions, I do the ritual so it keeps the gods uh, from being mad at me so the crops grow and come in. In modern religions, I live a good life, I do good things, I earn favor with God, and He does good things for me. See, both scenarios, when you boil it down, it's a, it's a desire to control God for my benefit. Here's the thing. It never works. Religion never works. But coming to Jesus is faith. And faith is surrender. Surrender is based on trust. And trusting Jesus always works. Faith is surrender. I can't control my life. Faith is surrender. I can't control the future. But I trust you, Jesus, that you love me, that you'll forgive me, and that I can live for you. When you surrender to Jesus, you are surrendering to love. And love always works. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. His power still is changing lives today. Still is offering forgiveness today. Giving grace today. Giving a new start. But with God on your side. Today. And maybe that's just what you need. The risen Jesus offers you salvation. It means hope beyond this life and meaning here and now. The risen Jesus offers you forgiveness. It means a new start, a clean slate. I can be washed clean. And all of this comes as you turn to Him in faith. And that's trust. And it happens on the inside. You trusting Jesus for what He did and what He can do for you. Now, maybe that's just what you need to do. Maybe you've been listening to this, and there's something inside, a nagging little voice saying, I need to find forgiveness. I need to find peace with God, and I believe it comes through Christ. I'd like to help you find that peace. Like I said, it comes on the inside through trust and faith, but it happens as we express that faith and trust to God in prayer. So I'm going to invite you to bow for a prayer. In fact, why don't we all bow for prayer wherever we are, as we're sitting in our living rooms or wherever we're watching this, uh, this uh, st live stream. I'd like you to bow for prayer and just pray with me. And Maybe for those who need to say yes to Jesus for the first time, pray this prayer. Silently where you are, God will hear, but repeat these words. You say, Lord Jesus, I trust you. I believe you are who you say you are. And I believe you did what you said you would do. I believe you died on the cross. And there you paid my penalty. I believe you rose again. Because you are God the Son. So forgive my sin. Wash me clean. I want to be your child. Lord, I don't know who prayed that prayer in the audience that's watching today, but I know that you know, and I know that's your great desire that there are those who are saying yes to faith and yes to trust even on this Resurrection Sunday morning. So I pray that you would affirm in their life as they have done that, that you are right there, you are watching, and you are changing them from the inside out. I pray for all of us. Many of us who are watching this broadcast have been believers for some time, but it just encourages us to know that as we cling to you in faith, you get us through difficult times. 
that the same power that brought Jesus back from the dead is still working today. And we claim that power and we look to you. So help us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer of salvation, I'd like to know about it. And in fact, I'd like to send you uh, this book called What Now What? It's a next steps in terms of the walk of faith. And in order to get this new journey with Jesus going, I'd love, you to, I'd love to send this book to you and uh, you can read it. But in order to do that, I need to be able to know your contact information. And so we're going to do that by text uh, since we're in this uh, remote situation. So if you said yes to Jesus today, I'd invite you to text the word faith. That's the word faith to 209-257-8768. And we'll respond to you with a return text asking for your contact information. And uh, I'll be able to send you the book and follow up on your decision. God bless you as you do that. You know, if we were together on this Resurrection Sunday, one of the things that we would enjoy would be the wonderful quail choir singing to us. We're not able to do that today. But... We have developed or we've seen being developed all around us a new phenomenon recently called the virtual choir. So we want to share this choir song with you from a virtual choir and I know that you'll be blessed. Let's watch together.
I hope you can say, it is well with my soul. Let me close today with some words from Peter Marshall. He writes this, No tabloid will ever print the startling news that the mummified body of Jesus of Nazareth has been discovered in old Jerusalem. Christians have no carefully embalmed body enclosed in a glass case to worship. Thank God, we have the empty tomb. The glorious fact that the empty tomb proclaims to us is that life does not stop when death comes. Death is not a wall, but a door. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for the fact that you defeated death. And as we recall this resurrection on this Resurrection Sunday, we rejoice in all that we have in you. Bless us as we go our ways this day. Enable us to glorify in you, you always. And in Jesus' name, we ask that you would continue to work in and through us so that men and women, boys and girls, might know the love of Christ and might come to you in faith. Thanks for being here with us as we worship you this morning. We know that you have been pleased and you've heard our worship. Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being part of our broadcast this morning. Happy Resurrection Day.